Our New Testament reading this morning is from Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 through 12. In the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, and through whom also he made the universe. The Son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. After he had provided purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. So he became as much superior to the angels as the name he has inherited is superior to theirs. For to which of the angels did God ever say, you are my son, today I have become your father? Or again, I will be his father and he will be my son. And again, when God brings his firstborn into the world, he says, let all God's angels worship him. In speaking of the angels, he says, he makes his angels spirits and his servants flames of fire. But about the sun, he says, your throne, O God, will last forever and ever. A scepter of justice will be the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has set you above your companions by anointing you with the oil of joy. He also says, in the beginning, Lord, you laid the foundation of the earth, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will all wear out like a garment. You will roll them up like a robe, like a garment they will be changed, but you remain the same, and your years will never end. Both the passage from... Hosea, or I mean Micah, and the passage from Hebrews are passages that tell us about who this Christ will be, who Jesus Christ is, and who Jesus Christ, what he promises for us. And yet at Christmas time, it's tempting for us to think of the baby Jesus, and that is certainly part of who he was. He came to humanity as a baby. But pastors get a little worried sometimes, and I I know I'm not alone because I've read this from others, that a lot of people seem to want to keep him as a baby. They want to keep Jesus as a a baby who bears no threat to them, no threat to their lifestyle, no, no asking them to do anything different than what they already do. This was illustrated in a movie about maybe 15, 20 years ago, um, and I shared a few, uh, about a couple months ago about NASCAR. I talked about NASCAR here, and I, in doing that, discovered that there are some NASCAR fans in this church, and um, so I would ask you, who's the greatest NASCAR driver? Maybe the NASCAR fans are in the other service, but I know there's one in here. Jackie, you have a favorite. Okay, that was the answer that you generally get, right? Dale Earnhardt. Um, I would say a a, a competitor might be um, Ricky Bobby. He's not real, folks. No threat to Dale Earnhardt whatsoever. Ricky Bobby was a fictional NASCAR driver from the movie Talladega Nights. And if you haven't seen it, don't. But I did see it years ago, and when I saw it, I got so annoyed that I almost left the theater because there's Ricky Bobby, the star of the show, praying. 
over a meal. And he prays to the sweet little baby Jesus. And he thanks sweet little baby Jesus for the KFC and for the Taco Bell and for the Domino's pizza and for his sons. Walker and TR, Texas Ranger. And he thanks God for his wife and certain physical qualities in his wife that I am not going to go into right now. And he continues to pray to sweet little baby Jesus, thanking sweet little baby Jesus for all these things. And his wife pipes up and says, you know, it's a little awkward to pray to a little baby. He did grow up. And Ricky Bobby says, "Uh, you can pray to whoever you want. I like sweet little baby Jesus. That's the Jesus I want, so that's the Jesus I'm going to pray to. Rather ridiculous, right? And in our day, a lot of people think that whoever you want to pray to, whatever you want to trust, that's fine, because truth really is, is what you want it to be. So we create the truth that we want, or we agree with whatever we, we like, whatever is, draws our sensibilities in, and we say, well, that's what I'm going to believe. But Jesus did grow up. You can't keep him in the manger. The whole point of the manger was so that he would grow up and be the one who saves us, the Savior of the world, and the one who will return to establish his kingdom. He is so much bigger than a baby. Don't keep him in the manger. And don't think that you can create reality by what you want. It doesn't work that way. It's amazing that culturally we have, we have embraced that idea to, to such a degree that people say, well, that's okay for you to believe, but I'm going to believe what I want to believe and think that that's all good. As if we can create truth within ourselves. If there is a God, and we trust that there is, and if this God created everything, we all answer to that God, and in God is truth. And that truth is external to ourselves. So the key is to find the truth, the real truth, not the one we make up, but the one that is actually real and base our life on the bedrock of that truth. And in, this, in these passages, we see glimpses of that truth, of who Jesus Christ is. In the Micah passage, we read that he will be the ruler over Israel. This is beautiful, whose origins are from of old, from ancient times. In other words, this one who will be born already existed in ancient times. What a beautiful picture of Jesus. And this this passage is, is affirmed in Matthew when Matthew points to, in his gospel, this passage, this very passage, to say he was to be born in Bethlehem, and sure enough, Jesus our Messiah is born in Bethlehem. Then in verse 4 of Micah 5, he will stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord and the majesty of the name of the Lord with his God, and they will live securely, for then his greatness will reach to the ends of the earth. They will dwell securely. 
This is the promise we are given in Christ, that we will dwell securely. And the, the other passages in Isaiah and other Old Testament prophets tell us that swords will be beaten into plowshares, that lions will lay down with lambs, that the wolf and the lion will feed together, that children will be safe from the threats of snakes. And whatever it is, there will be no more threat. There will be no more reason to fear because the kingdom of God is established in Jesus Christ as the king over the kingdom. And when it says here that they will dwell securely and he will be our peace, what it's saying is that human hearts will be so retuned into relationship with God that there will be nothing that can threaten us. What causes fights and quarrels among you, says James. Well, it's the desires that battle within you. What causes you to feel threatened by someone else? You feel threatened because they might take something from you, and you need everything you have. What makes you jealous? That someone else has something that you don't have, and you wish you, wish you had that. Wars are fought because one nation doesn't want to lose something to another nation. So they, the, they fight each other for whatever it is that they think they need. All of this, all of this striving and struggling to get and to maintain and to hold on to is because we feel, we believe that resources are limited and I need to get all the resources I can get or all that I have, and no one should take them from me because I don't want to lose. But what the kingdom of God promises is that resources are unlimited, that you will no longer have to worry that anyone can take anything from you because you will have everything. You'll have everything you need. You'll have everything your heart desires. You will no longer need to strive after anything because all the desires of your heart will be met in your relationship with Jesus Christ. And when the kingdom comes in its fullness, there will be no need for weaponry. There will be no need for anything that represents fighting. There will be no need for anything that represents lack because all will be fulfilled. This is the promise we have in Jesus Christ. And because of this promise, when we invite him into our hearts, when we invite him into our lives, when we believe the promises of his kingdom, we can start demonstrating the values and the fulfillment of his kingdom now. We will not personally need to strive after the things we had to strive after before because those things we thought we needed to make ourselves feel valuable and, have, and purposeful. But in Christ, we find all the value we need and all the purpose that we were designed for. And when we start experiencing that and we then relate to others from a place of fullness rather than a place of lack, we can demonstrate to them what it means to feel full what it means to not lack, what it means to have no reason for envy or jealousy. And that, my friends, is a glimpse into the glorious future that God promises to us and why if we are promised that future and can experience it to a degree now, would we not 
put aside jealousies and put aside those things for which we strive against someone else. Know that you have and you are what God wants you to be. No longer needing to strive. And all of this because Jesus Christ is the shepherd of the flock, the one who has all the strength of the Lord, all the majesty of the name of God. And from Hebrews, there's a list of characteristics of who Jesus is, uh, seven of them in all, and that he is the heir of all things. He is the creator of the universe. He is the radiance of God's glory. He is the exact representation of God's being. He is the sustainer of all the purification from sin. He sits at the right hand of God. He is the mediator between God and humanity. This is Jesus Christ, the one who existed before and through creation, the one who, yes, was born and was a baby but grew up to be the Savior of the world. He is glorious. For us to think of him any less than the glory that he is is a foolish and sad mistake. Jesus Christ comes into the darkness of this world, and that's why those church leaders in the Northern Hemisphere chose this time of year to celebrate the birth of Christ. We don't know when exactly his birthday is, but the early church decided to put the celebration of his birth here in this dark season, this dark time. Because the Savior of the world, the glorious King, the loving shepherd, came into this world in darkness, in humility. Why? Because he knows that we are in the darkness. He knows that we struggle. He knows that if he is going to embrace our humanity, he needs to embrace the difficulties of our humanity. There was a devotional I read this week in which a pastor preaches a sermon, well, she writes a sermon that she had preached, that she had read from another pastor who had preached a sermon, and now I'm going to um, preach a bit of the sermon that I read that was preached uh, by someone who had heard it preached before. Um, that's how preachers work sometimes, a uh, big secret you probably never thought of before. Anyway, this pastor preached a sermon by a pastor who preached a sermon that said that Matthew chapter 1 is the best Christmas passage to use. And you know what Matthew chapter 1 is? Matthew chapter 1 says these glorious words. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac was the father of Jacob, and Jacob was the father of Judah and his brothers. Judah was the father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar. Perez is the father of Hezron. Hezron was the father of Ram. Ram, the father of Amminadab, and Amminadab, the father of Nish. It goes on. The whole first 16 verses of Matthew 1 are names. Who begat whom? 
And this preacher, who is speaking the sermon from the other preacher that I'm speaking to you now, said that all of these names reflect for us what it means that Jesus became human, because if you look at those names, you see surprises. It is not always the, the one who was the famous one, the one who had, we would assume the king of creation would come through. It was someone else, someone we would never expect. Here's just a piece of, of this, um, this devotional thought. Speaking, for example, she says, of the five women Matthew chooses to include, not a mention of Sarah or of Rebecca or Rachel, the upstanding patriarchal wives of Israel, instead Tamar. Do you know Tamar? Tamar is a Canaanite who disguised herself as a prostitute and seduced her father-in-law Judah to get a son out of him. Rahab, another Canaanite, and a real prostitute. Ruth, the Moabite, another outsider, and Bathsheba, a mother of Solomon, is named only as the wife of Uriah, whom King David had killed so he could marry her himself. Every one of these women used as God's instrument had a scandal or aspersion attached to her, as does the fifth and final woman named in the genealogy, Mary, the mother of Jesus, with her unconventional pregnancy. But this will fit in with Jesus' coming ministry to tax collectors and sinners and prostitutes and lepers, to those who need a physician, not to those who are already righteous. Matthew's genealogy is showing us how the story of Jesus Christ contained and would continue to contain the flawed and inflicted and insulted, the cunning and the weak-willed and the misunderstood. His is an equal opportunity ministry for crooks and saints. And what about that final 14 generations of unknown or unremarkable names in that list? We don't know. We don't know who they are. And this, of course, where the message settles directly upon us. If so much powerful stuff can have been accomplished down through the millennia by wastrels, betrayers, and outcasts, and through people who were such complex mixtures of sinner and saint, and though so many obscure and undistinguished others, isn't that a pretty hopeful testament to the likelihood that God may use us? With our individual flaws and gifts in all manner of peculiar and unexpected ways. Who of us can say we're not in the process of being used right now, this advent, to fulfill some purpose whose grace and goodness would boggle our imagination if we could even begin to get our minds around it? Let me conclude by quoting the one who preached the sermon first. Um, he says that a thoughtful reflection on Matthew's genealogy encourage us during, encourages us during this liturgical season of Advent to continue the story of the sequence of Jesus Christ in this way. Jesus called Peter and Paul. Paul called Timothy. Someone called you, and you must call someone else. Amen. The sermon from the sermon is finished, but my sermon is not. <laughs> the point of all of that is to say that Jesus is not saying, get yourself together. I like the people who are all put together. I like the people better who are holy, who everybody else looks up to. He's saying, I like you. 
I choose you. I love you. You who are broken, you who are weak, you who are struggling, you who feel valueless, I love you. And I'm going to show you how much I love you by entering into this world as a humble baby threatening no one. And he calls us. He calls us as a shepherd who loves us to receive that love to receive that peace that comes from knowing that he holds us in his hands and he values us completely. There is nothing he wants from you that he will not give you and has not given you in Jesus Christ. This one who is the heir of all things the creator of all things, the radiance of God's glory, the exact representation of God's being, the sustainer of all things, the purification from sin, the right, sitting at the right hand of God interceding for us is the one who calls you. You are connected to the God who made all things. You are connected to the God who knows all things, and that God loves you. That God loves you enough to send his son into this world. And that son loves you enough to enter this world and be our rescuer, our rescuer from sin, from all those flaws, and from death. C.S. Lewis started out, and you probably know who C.S. Lewis is, a great Christian apologist, but he started out his life as an agnostic and even leaning toward atheism. And it was his friend, J.R.R. Tolkien, who, as they were walking around the lake, talked to him about the great stories. They were both academics at Oxford, both very bright, both interested in literature, you know, and then having written some of the enduring stories of our time, J.R.R. Tolkien, of course, The Hobbit, and, and all the books associated with that, and C.S. Lewis, The Chronicles of Narnia, and so many other books, but they we're walking around this lake and talking about um, literature, and Tolkien was trying to help Lewis understand why Jesus Christ is so important. And he said, now consider all of the stories that we tell, all of the stories that grab the human heart. And he said, consider how many of them have a problem, a situation that seems hopeless, a situation in which it seems the, the, the characters cannot help themselves. They cannot fix the situation. And then a hero comes in, and a hero comes in and saves the day and rescues them from all of their troubles. And that's the happy ending that people want. And Tolkien said, don't you think that that storyline captures something that is going on in every human heart, and that is why those stories are so compelling to us? That every person is longing, longing to be rescued and hoping for a rescuer. And then Tolkien went on to say, and that is the same as the story of Jesus Christ, who came into this sin-darkened world, this world where frustrations and sorrows still plague humanity, 
and rescued us and promises us an eternal kingdom. And Lewis said, yes, that is probably why so many people believe that story. And Tolkien said, but there's a huge difference here. All those other stories are made up. They're made up and they resonate with us because those made up stories tell us something we wish for. But the story itself doesn't, doesn't fulfill the wish. It just enhances the wish because it makes us realize, I want that, but it's not there. Tolkien said, in Jesus Christ, we have a true story. In Jesus Christ, we have the truth and that longing that is in our hearts that the story starts to draw us in with is answered in Jesus Christ. And from there, Lewis, considering the Christian faith, came to be a believer and one of the best apologists, one of the best explainers of Christianity that we've seen in many, many years, helping us to embrace this glorious story, this glorious truth of this baby in a manger who was actually God, who was actually the creator of all things, who is the hero, the rescuer, the one who comes into the darkness and takes us into his light. This is the message, folks. This is the message of Christmas. This is the message of our salvation. I pray that we will receive it and continue to believe it and choose to follow the one who offers us so much and will not let us down.